0: Morning. We are continuing our series in 1 John this morning, and I just love where John has taken us over these last several weeks. I am even more excited about where we're going to go these next two weeks as we wrap this series up. You'll remember that we are not going through First John linearly; we are going through it topically. And we're looking at these three topics that John touches on that are so frequently misunderstood. To start off, John took some time to focus on Jesus. And I love where we landed with those first three sermons of this series that Jonathan preached. It came down to this. Jesus is the Christ, fully God, fully human, fully sufficient to save us. Draw a circle around that and hold on tightly to that but be humble about everything that falls outside of that circle. Then John focused on obedience, and he reminded us that obedience is not about moral behavior. It's about fellowship. Our salvation does not depend on our obedience. Obedience is not burdensome. It actually sets us free to experience what our hearts are truly longing for. And this week, we take a deep dive into the parts of this letter where John talks specifically about love. We're going to see John bring to the surface some things we may not realize we've been misunderstanding for a long time. I know I've had that experience while studying for these weeks. I'm excited to share what I've learned with you. I think John is going to prompt some paradigm shifts for us, and that is always a good thing. The section of text that we're gonna be in today is 1 John chapter 2, verses seven through 17, if you wanna go ahead and find that. And in each of these three passages that we're gonna look at in the next few weeks, John is going to stick with basically the same formula. He's going to talk a lot about love. Love, love, love. Love, 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 more love. He's the apostle of love. And then he's going to present a specific complexity about love that leads us to easily misunderstand the true essence of that love. Here's the complexity we're going to find in this text today. The sum of John's encouragement to believers here is loving people. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. The sum of John's warnings to believers here is not loving the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. And believers, that right there has created some serious tension for us historically. We kind of struggle with striking that balance the way Jesus did. How can you love people well and also be very careful to hate the world that all the people we are supposed to love live in? How do you love someone who is very worldly? Jesus himself told us that the world will know us by our love. Would you agree with me that we Christians don't have the best reputation when it comes to the people of the world feeling loved by us? Why are we so bad at this sometimes? I remember feeling this tension early on in my faith journey, this charge to love and this fear that was planted in me to not get too close to worldly people while trying to love them. Like they may rub off on you and you'll start to love the things of the world that they love. Or you'll make them think the sinful things they are doing are okay because you're loving them even though they're doing that. Or you'll be a stumbling block. Has anyone heard that term before? You'll be a stumbling block to other believers who are trying very hard to stop the exact sin that this person you're loving is doing. That's very complex, and all of these messages are very confusing, and honestly, they're really broken perspectives for any follower of Jesus to embrace. But I was reflecting on this tension, and I remembered one of those Slick little pocket one-liners that Christians have adopted. We love to have pocket answers to really complex issues. Because complex issues, they're hard to navigate well. It's much easier to have a one-liner that shuts down the tension than it is to sit in the tension. So I imagine you've heard this one-liner before. You've maybe even adopted it yourself at one point in time. I know I did. Here it is. Hate the sin, love the sinner. You guys heard that before? Hate the sin, love the sinner. Okay. I remember hearing that years ago and thinking, oh, okay, this is the answer then. This is how I can be sure to love people, but also be sure to not ever love the world. This is my way out of all those concerns I've heard about. The sin of people I'm loving won't rub off on me if I'm sure to hate it. I won't accidentally make this person I'm loving think that what they're doing in their life is okay with me if I'm sure to point out that I hate what they're doing in their life. If I'm very verbal about hating what this person is doing while I'm loving them, then I won't be a stumbling block to other believers. Everyone will know that I'm loving this person, but I'm not accepting their sin as okay with me. I was curious where this phrase originated, because I've heard it my entire life. So I went to the all-knowing and all-wise Googler. And you know how Google, it'll populate what it thinks you're asking as you begin to type words in the search bar. Usually it populates several options. It's trying to figure out what you're getting at. And it uses an algorithm, and it populates those options for you by their popularity. So the most frequently searched phrases populate first, and so on. As I typed in, hate the sin, love the sinner, several things populated automatically. I took a screenshot of this so I could show it to you. Now, notably is that Hamilton made it in there, um, down there with the little... Icon for Hamilton, I think there's a song that has this line in it. Um, So I wanted you to see what populated here, but I wanted to point something out in particular. Google populated hate the sin, love the sinner Bible verse as the third most popular search with these words. Turns out a lot of people think this phrase is straight from the Bible. It definitely draws upon sentiments found in the Bible. God's wrath in the Old Testament, Jesus' love for people, but it is not in the Bible. And I would argue is in direct opposition to what the Bible teaches us. You might say, but it's the truth in love. Sinful people need to hear the truth about their sin. And if I'm loving them while telling telling them the truth about their sin, that should make it Okay. Plus, it's the perfect path through this trickiness because it slices right through that tension that I feel. Yes, it does. And it also slices right through the very hearts and lives of any person I would exercise that phrase on. It just drips with judgment. There's more focus on what someone is doing rather than who they are, that one-liner. It just couldn't be more opposite from everything Jesus ever said. Jesus said, love the sinner, period. In fact, he actually took away our permission to call people sinners when he said, they're your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Love. But hate sin. I mean, sure, I can see how that can make sense to us. Anger at sin ended on the cross. When Jesus looks at you and me, he does not see our sin. In fact, he's removed it from himself as far as the east is from the west. I don't know why we think it's so important to close that immeasurable distance of grace that Jesus accomplished for us when it comes to other people. We do that when we judge others by their actions. It is impossible to love someone you are judging So how does John reconcile this for us? He's the one saying you need to love people. You need to also be sure to hate the world. Let's see how he clears up this misunderstanding. I wanna start today with what does John really even mean when he says that we should not love the world? So let's look at verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So what does John mean by the world or the things in the world? The New Testament uses the term world in at least three ways. Sometimes the world refers to planet Earth the physical world, God's creation. Sometimes it refers to humankind, the human world, also God's creation. Sometimes it refers to human culture as influenced by Satan or the world system. That last one is how John is using that word here. When John says the world here, he is referring to the system of values, priorities, and beliefs that unbelievers hold that excludes God and is alien to his love, therefore radically evil and doomed to perish. A system that is an active and aware rebellion against God. And to be clear, John never says that we are to hate that world or the things in the world. He says, do not love the world or things in the world. There's an important difference there that already debunks our catchy one-liner. And John explains even further this world system of Satan by breaking it down into three very specific things. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. The desires of the flesh, the desire to do something that excludes God and is alien from his love. The desires of the eyes, the desire to have something that excludes God and is alien from his love. The pride of life. The desire to be something that excludes God and is alien from his love. And John says that if we love any of those things, then love for God is not in us. This building is full of people who hate God. Not one of us have mastered this We are all tempted by these things. That means we all must be incapable of loving God. Is that what John is saying? This is where that lens we choose to look at Scripture with that Cindy talked about a few weeks ago is so important. That can't be what John is saying. That would exclude every last one of us from loving God. And we all know we're here today, and we show up in our faith journeys every day because that's exactly what we're trying to pursue So let's back up to some of the verses that John opens this section with. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Before John even gets into this charge to not love the world or anything in the world, he sets up some really important things. John had heard this old commandment with his own ears. He mentions it in his gospel when he records these words of Jesus. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. I'm sure John and other followers of Jesus were moved by this charge then when the words came out of Jesus' mouth. They saw with their own eyes how Jesus was loving people who they would deem unlovable. But when John is writing this letter, Jesus had died and been resurrected. How much more of a charge this was now. John thought he knew Jesus' love back when Jesus said this. But at this point, he had witnessed Jesus express his love by having watched him give up his life for us. That's why he's saying this is an old commandment, but it has been made new in Jesus and what he's done. It means even more to him now than it did then. It means more to us. And he goes on to use these passive and active verbs when describing the darkness, the world, and the light God's love and redemption when he says in verse 8, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He paints this picture of active light imposing itself upon passive darkness. Both verbs are continuous, pointing to the fact that darkness and light are both always in process on this earth. Why does process matter? We've been highlighting in this series the process that John was on. He started out being known as a son of thunder, wanting to rain down judgment on people. He's ending his life known as an apostle of love wanting nothing more than for us to know the truth about Jesus, to experience his grace and fellowship with him and express that fellowship to a broken and hurting world through love. Process is the mark of growth. And process matters if we are to think rightly of ourselves and of those around us as we are all just trying to navigate all the things We will never love exactly as Jesus does. We will always wrestle with the things of this world captivating us. And John is not saying that until you have that love perfected, and until you master never being tempted ever again by the things of this world, you are incapable of loving and pursuing God. John is talking about a journey here, a process that we are in when we let God have his way in our hearts. The light overtaking the darkness. And that process is at work in us, and it's at work in others. And then John must have just gotten really inspired because there is this strangely placed poem that happens next in today's text. At verse 12, there's this weird break away from what John is saying. He just starts feeling really creative, and he's like, I'm going to write a poem about children and young men and fathers. It's basically the same thing as breaking out into song, so maybe he would have been a Hamilton fan. We know it's a poem because if you're looking at an actual Bible, um, it, this happens a few times in Scripture. The author switches from pose to poetic form, and visually the margins change, and, and everything looks a little bit different, and the words take on this like poetic element. And that's what we see John do here. And you have overcome the evil one. It seems that John used these three stages of life to highlight the journey of growth, process. And he repeats it to really illustrate their progression. As brand new believers, we're like children. We come to know our Father by the foundational truth that our sins are forgiven. Relationship with Him cannot be broken of Because of this, anger at sin ended on the cross. As young believers, we begin to experience victory in overcoming these desires of the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life. We grow stronger in resisting temptation. We experience God's presence abiding in us as we grow in this way. And then, when we reach ripe old ages, and if we have continued to mature in our faith, We know him who is from the beginning. There's intimacy and understanding and fellowship like we've never known before. But he has always been there all along since the beginning, drawing us towards him on this trajectory of growth. The light shining actively brighter and brighter, the darkness fading away, less and less disruptive to our lives. Can we acknowledge then what a miss it is for us to take a snapshot in time of our lives or the lives of those around us and determine that the work God is doing is done and that's who we or they are always going to be. One moment in time is not the end-all, be-all for us. Praise God. We're all on a journey. This progression that John talks about is exactly why we are free to love people exactly where they are. The process we are all in matters because it frees us to love. There's no need for an excuse as to why that love is okay. This process that God is actively working on in every person's life frees us to love them without explanation, without a follow up comment about what we see as sin in their life. We are free to love others. That's what we're called to do. Can we let go of this belief? that if we don't confront someone with their sin, we will accidentally make them think that their sin is okay. The sovereign God who created everything you've ever seen sent the Holy Spirit to all of us, and that Spirit is actively working at pushing back the darkness in the world and in the lives of the people around us. We aren't responsible for the spirit of the living God's success in the lives of others. I'm thankful for that. We'd be in trouble if that was on me. But you know how we can partner with the spirit in that amazing work? You know how we can fan the flame of that always active, life-changing movement of God and his mighty spirit in the lives of others? We can love people and stop getting hung up on their sin. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him, there is no cause for stumbling. You will not hurt anyone by loving a human being who is created in the very image of our loving God. Even if that human being is doing something you think is sinful... John says very directly, let me clear this up for you. There is no cause for stumbling in that. Impulse to hate causes stumbling. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. We might say, all right, I've got some work to do. I see how hating someone's sin doesn't really help anyone, but I'm not hating any person. I don't hate my brother, even if I do wrestle with feeling like I should be clear that I hate his sin. Hate is hard to keep under control, even if it begins as only hating someone's actions. That little hate fire gets out of control fast. Before we know it, we've burned someone's house down, and we think we've done something righteous. I think that's what John is highlighting here. The cause of stumbling is hatred in the heart, not love. With hatred in our hearts, we are the ones in the darkness and we lose our sense of spiritual direction. I think what John is saying is when we're in the darkness, we don't just experience not being able to see, we actually go blind. So what's the answer here, John? What misunderstandings is he trying to clear away regarding love and the world? When John talks about not loving the world, he's talking about the effect of the world in us. He's warning us against our own desires, of our own flesh, our own eyes, our own pride. If you really want to not love the world, don't love the world in you. Don't worry about not loving the world in someone else. God doesn't need us to run interference for him in others' lives. We are all in process, and that gives us hope. It gives us freedom to love others no matter where they are in that process in their life. There's no command here to do anything with what you believe to be your brother's sin. There is a very clear command to love your brother. John recorded these words of Jesus, said to John and the other disciples before Jesus died, let me give you a new command. Love one another in the same way I loved you. You love one another in the same way I loved you. How does Jesus love you? He loves you relentlessly, no matter what response He gets back from you. He loves you without hesitation, no matter what sinful actions you are participating in. And He knows about those things. He loves you without judgment. He took all of that to the cross with Him. In the same way He loves us, we are to go and love others. Relentlessly, without hesitation, without judgment. Spirit, would you lead us to the people we are to love? Jesus, would you help us love like you do? Would you help us to love the way you love us?